to the floor and thank you again for being here today to present your new research project. Thank you. Thanks very much. And, and thanks very much for all of your hospitality all week long. I've had a great week and gotten lots of uh, feedback on my research. And of everything I'm talking about this week, this is really the most recent work because it involves Canada as well as the United States. And I am interested in the differences between how Americans go about forming trade attitudes and how Canadians do. Um, oh, and I should also mention my most widely cited work aside from the Harry Potter piece, is the piece I did on how dog ownership affects Obama support. And I'm totally serious. <laughs> that got endless coverage. So yeah, it's not exactly my best work, but, <laughs> but it did get a lot of attention. And in fact, uh, the commentary on that one was my absolute favorite because they said, oh, sure, a professor named Mutz writing about dogs, you know this is made up. <laughs> I never even thought about it, but they were right. It did look kind of uh, suspicious. <laughs> so in any case, um, this is some work I started with one of my IPE, my international political economy colleague, uh, Ed Mansfield, and I've since done some things without Ed as well, but it really uh, started because of a bet we had over lunch one day at the office uh, where I was interested in studying trade from the pers perspective of public opinion. And so I said, well, where did trade attitudes come from, Ed? And Ed said, oh, we all know that. That was answered a long time ago. They come from individuals' personal economic self-interest. And I found that really surprising as a political psychologist because we have a huge literature in political psychology showing that people have a very difficult time, except when issues are very uh, straightforward and simple, people have a hard time forming policy attitudes on the basis of personal economic self-interest. Trade didn't seem to fit that mold for an issue where people would be politicizing self-interest. It's a highly abstract, very complex issue for people to understand. Um, what's more, the elite conversation about trade tends to be uh, about complex economic arguments that the public doesn't necessarily follow or understand. And further, um, much of the coverage of trade, at least in the United States, emphasizes it as a form of competition in particular. And again, that's very different from the way economists tend to think about it. Obviously, recent history suggests that it is a hard thing to sell, uh, meaning we have elites in many countries uh, trying to sell the public on various free trade agreements or on the general idea of trade, and they have encountered uh, opposition. Less so here in Canada, um, but it's clear trade is now an issue that the public does pay attention to. When I first started this line of research, um, honestly, everybody would say, well, eh, I guess it's interesting, but who cares about public opinion on trade? Uh, it's not relevant uh, to our political scene these days. And little did I know, I really should have waited to submit those articles <laughs> about yeah. a year later, and I wouldn't have gotten the same reaction. So it's very easy to vilify globalization, as Donald Trump has found. And in fact, in the United States, we've had a big shift since 2012 in a more anti-trade direction in public opinion. What's interesting about this is that we don't really know where they come from, meaning that the typical argument is if we look at people's occupations 
uh, the skill level required for their jobs or the industry that they're located in. And we look at whether or not it benefits or is vulnerable to trade. That will help determine um, people's opinions. Well, Ed and I spent a couple of years just beating that hypothesis to death and trying to find evidence that people were capable of politicizing uh, their own personal self-interest with respect to trade. And we found absolutely no evidence that was influenced by their type of occupation, whether it was trade neutral or positive or negative, or their industry of employment. Um, we also looked, for example, even if you weren't personally hurt, maybe your community was devastated by the loss of jobs. Uh, no evidence of it at the community level either. Uh, no evidence that people who lost jobs became more anti-trade as a result of that. Um, we also decided just to ask people if the place where they worked uh, was involved in importing and exporting. And we can tell you, people have no clue. Uh, for the most part, uh, you know, they're, they, they did no better than chance <laughs> in assessing whether or not uh, the kind of position they were in was vulnerable. What's interesting is one of the main uh, predictors of trade attitudes that's long been interpreted this way is the fact that union membership predicts anti-trade attitudes in the United States. But one of the fascinating things that we found when we looked at union workers in the United States is that they're employed primarily in non-tradable lines of work. They're mainly civil service employees, teachers. These are all positions that are not traded. They're not vulnerable to trade. So most union members in the United States even though they are indeed more anti-trade, they're not in positions where they're personally, economically vulnerable. So where did the idea come from um, that it is self-interest? In the IPE field, you can find lots of, level, lots of studies that are more at the aggregate level, but primarily it's because education is such a huge predictor of trade support. The more educated are much more supportive of international trade. And that's true across uh, many different countries that have been studied. That was interpreted as an indicator of people's position in the economic distribution. Uh, but as it turns out, that is not what education represents. So when we actually look at the line of work they're in and so forth, that doesn't work out. So, the question is, if it's not economic self-interest, what is it exactly? And the contribution that Ed and I made in an earlier publication is to suggest that trade is truly sociotropic, meaning that, um, as you can see here, most people in the US don't see trade as having an effect on their family finances. Overwhelmingly, they're right in the middle saying, no, it really doesn't affect me, whether they're right or wrong. I'm not going to comment, but it's true that most people are employed in non-tradable lines of work. On the other hand, they do have perceptions of whether it's good for the collective, for the Americans as a whole. And those perceptions are what really seem to drive trade preferences to a great extent. Uh, that's a common pattern we see in public opinion where people have an easier time connecting uh, perceptions of collectives to policy attitudes. But that's not all. Obviously, there are other things going on. And uh, really, when I started this line of work, it was in the American context. And I'll tell you how I got to some of the theories I have. And then I'm going to look at them in a comparative context. First of all, um, one thing that we found fascinating is that measures of domestic racism predicted trade preferences. And this is long before Trump. Um, 
Basically, when you ask Latinos, you know, blacks and whites in the U.S. how they feel about one another, that's a really strong predictor of attitudes toward international trade. There's no obvious logic because they're talking about domestic racial groups. Nonetheless, we know that people's attitudes toward outgroups tends to generalize, and it made some sense that this also probably related to their attitudes toward foreigners as well. The second clue um, was that when we put together lots of different questions about trade, you could see that their attitude on foreign direct investment were more or less just like their attitudes toward trade. And foreign direct investment means bringing jobs to the US. So that didn't make a lot of sense. Uh, in one case, they're worried about jobs going out, and the other, jobs are coming in, and they're still opposing it. What these questions and these policies have in common is that they both involve foreigners. Um, and so that's the common thread running through them. That was a second clue to how I might look at this. The other thing that's interesting is, in the United States, minorities are significantly more favorable toward international trade. Uh, and that's true even after throwing in you know, everything else and controlling for it. Most people have assumed it should be the opposite because minorities are less well off economically uh, and would seem to be more vulnerable to the impacts of trade. And they were certainly more vulnerable to the impacts of the recent recession. Um, but again, an interesting pattern. When we ask people why they oppose trade, uh, the very most popular thing is saying it hurts jobs. But the second most common thing they say is we should put America first. Uh, you know, America first, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, we have to look out for our own, and so on and so forth. So some sort of uh, comment about in-group favoritism is really the uh, second most common reason that people give in an open-ended context. So this is what led me to believe that psychological motivations really play an important role in the formation of trade attitudes, and especially this in-group, out-group dimension uh, that we're very familiar with in political psychology. Obviously, uh, Trump has emphasized this slogan to a tremendous extent, Americans come first, not illegals, not refugees, not foreign workers, and so forth. Uh, this whole idea of in-group favoritism being the patriotic and appropriate kind of attitude to have. And one of the things I found was very clear in the American data is that you know, as, as researchers, we go to great lengths uh, to try to find out how people really think, even when they know it's socially unacceptable to express racist views or sexist views, this particular type of in-group favoritism doesn't have that problem, uh, meaning that people actually see it as socially undesirable to be pro-trade. Uh, you're not a patriotic American. You're not you know, being loyal to your country, and so on and so forth. So it's a very different form of in-group favorit favoritism in this respect. Now, many people immediately would say, oh, but isn't this thing we're talking about as in-group favoritism? You're just casting in a bad light. Isn't it really a sense of duty or obligation to your co-nationals? It's very hard, I think, to make that argument in the US context. Not only because Americans demonstrate very little uh, enthusiasm for helping their fellow Americans 
via social welfare policies and so forth, but also because those who most strongly identify as Americans, those who are most pro-America, are actually most opposed to helping their co-nationals via various policies. So it's exactly the opposite of what you'd expect if this is really about you know, wanting to take care of our own. Uh, the kind of comment <clears throat> I got often was, oh, well, just like you, know, you favor members of your own family and take care of them, it's the same thing. That's why we uh, don't want to be involved with foreigners. But again, the patterns in public opinion don't really focus, don't really uh, run consistent with that in many ways. Why did I next study Canada in particular? Um, I was actually interested in looking at all of our major trading partners. And obviously, Canada is one of our top trading partners. And so are China and Mexico. But Canada seemed an easier place to start. Uh, and basically, I also knew from the American context that it would be good to have a place with differing attitudes toward trade. And on the whole, my expectation was that Canada was far more uh, positive toward trade. And then finally, the other thing that really sold me on doing Canada was, well, I wanted to come back and visit. Yeah, <laughs> it's the food, the wine, the company, but that too. But one of the things that's very different uh, about Canada and the US is Americans value competition to a very extreme extent. In fact, according to the World Value Surveys, our level of enthusiasm for competition is unmatched by any industrialized country that they've ever studied. Uh, Americans like competitions. They like to win, <laughs> obviously, as well. Um, what's interesting is Canada is not on the really low end of the scale. It's actually fairly pro-competition, but it's significantly less so than America on the whole. Um, not nearly as likely to say uh, that competition is really a good thing, ultimately. So for all of these reasons, uh, I really wanted to focus on a place that was different. Um, Americans not only uh, value competition, they also believe in the fairness of unequal outcomes, meaning that if you have a competition and you lose, too bad. Uh, that there's very much this attitude that the outcome, we're not responsible for that, only the opportunity side of things. Competition tends to be a means of distinguishing ourselves, separating ourselves from others. And I think that's part of the reason it's very much a part of the American exceptionalism, American exceptionalism as well, that sense that we are different. And this ties into this whole issue of national identity that I mentioned. OK, uh, the studies themselves were kind of a two-part design, um, virtually identical. The, first of all, I did a nationally representative survey in both the United States and the same one in Canada. Um, they were not exactly at the same time, but both were really uh, pre-Trump kinds of things. So the data you're going to see don't reflect at least the most recent changes in these um, attitudes. What happened was I, I did the survey uh, on around 3,000 people. then. Three months later, we went back to those people and we ran a survey experiment. And what was nice about that is we already had all of this background information on people's, not just their trade attitudes, but a lot of other 
characteristics as well that we could use uh, in analyzing the experiment. But the people had no idea it was actually connected to the experimental module that was done later. Uh, <laughs> this was done three or four months later in both cases. Um, obviously, we didn't get everybody back, but uh, over 2,000 in both cases. So a very large sample for a survey experiment. They were online surveys? Yes. Mm -hmm. So we had a trade support index that was in the survey. I'm going to talk about the observational uh, relationships first. Involved a bunch of different questions. They form a really highly reliable index. Uh, regardless of what the question is, we opted not to ask about um, things like the TPP and so forth, because what we found is that people, uh, unless it's a, an agreement like NAFTA that's been around for a long time, people don't really even know, even Donald Trump didn't appear to know, like what countries the TPP involved ultimately. So um, we kept it very general, highly intercorrelated, and in fact, Canadians are significantly more supportive of trade than are Americans. Um, this is a uh, you know one to four scale. Um, it's right around the middle for Americans and so forth. But there's a lot more support in general um, in Canada. It's a very significant difference. What we did at the very beginning of this survey is a first question before we talk to people about anything else. We asked them, you know, after they were asked their trade attitudes, why is it that you think trade with other countries should be encouraged or discouraged? Uh, and we prompted them to you know, write as much as possible about the reasons for both favoring and opposing. Overwhelmingly, uh, the dominant reasons for favoring trade were very similar in both countries. Um, mostly on the positive side, people said something about it being good for the economy in an abstract sense. They would say, uh, you know, more export is good for our businesses, and so on and so forth. And these just are a couple of sample quotes from people who espouse pro-trade attitudes. Secondly, and surprisingly to me, the second most popular reason for supporting trade that people gave us was the same in the US and Canada, and it had to do with availability of goods, that we can get stuff we don't have by virtue of trade. Uh, and of course, that was the original reason that you know, traders started trading, was because they wanted something somebody else had that they didn't. Um, brings more products in, better variety, and then they say maybe more jobs, clearly not sure how it works. Um, but the, the idea that Canada needs to sell things to more people than just Canadians in order to have uh, a strong economy. But interestingly, the variety of things available to us as consumers did matter to people. The dominant reasons for opposing trade that people volunteered were also very, very similar in both countries. First and foremost, in both places, it's job loss. Um, these are examples from the Canadian survey. People talk about trade taking jobs from Canada. Uh, they talked about the fact that they see the Canadian government's job as to provide jobs for Canadians, and they don't see international trade as doing that. Uh, they want to go back to Canadian manufacturing. Again, you could just substitute American, and that's exactly what the Americans uh, who oppose trade said as well, um, that essentially it was a drain on jobs. The second most popular thing, as I pointed out in the earlier graph, is various forms of in-group favoritism, a Canada first, uh, think of ourselves first, 
uh, buy our products first, buy Canadian, keep our jobs, and so on and so forth. And that's the second most um, really popular way of explaining an anti-trade attitude. The other thing I got a lot, and you can all, I'm sure can help me, I hope, in interpreting this, many people use this word local. I didn't capitalize this, they did. Um, a lot of people mention this word local. We need to favor local purchases, local businesses, and so forth. And it was interesting because we don't have that word being as prominent in the American open-ended responses. And my you know, hunch is that people, in some cases, mean by local meaning Canada, and in other cases, they mean may mean something like their province, um, something more specific, even <coughs> though we were asking them about the country as a whole. The other kind of uh, uh, interesting thing we found in both samples is a huge amount of misunderstanding of trade. Um, there's a lot of references to the trade deficit. Canada has a trade deficit, the US has a trade deficit, et cetera, et cetera. Um, People clearly are interpreting that to mean that the home country is losing more jobs than it's gaining due to international trade. That is not what it means. Obviously, deficit does sound like something bad, something you'd want to avoid. But actually, you know, in the US, our economy has done much better uh, under higher deficits in most cases. On the other hand, this is something Donald Trump also very much espouses. He talks about the trade deficit a great deal. And we're already hearing in after the first month of his presidency that he's coming up with new ways to keep the statistics so that it looks like we have less of a deficit, <laughs> because that's supposed to be a good thing. Um, again, why do we bother trading if it's really so terrible for us? It's an interesting question. And it's one that um, I'm very curious about how people think about this. Why do they think? Our countries engage in this if they think it's it's uh, only good for foreigners and not for us. Another similar type of misperception in both of these data sets that really surprised me: uh, we asked people about a whole bunch of different dimensions of international trade, how it affects the environment, home country, trading partner countries, treatment of labor, and so on and so forth. But the, and, and in most of those cases, you know, you can make arguments uh, uh, and make a case for both sides. But whether or not international trade increases or decreases the cost of consumer goods is just not considered uh, a matter for debate. But what's fascinating is that most in the United States, as well as in Canada, do not say that it decreases the cost of consumer goods. Uh, and you may say, well, what on earth are they thinking? Um, we do know a little bit about that because of the open-ended kinds of comments and because, at least in the American case, we did in-depth interviews with a lot of these people because uh, I once presented this at an IPE conference and they're like, that's impossible. How on earth could people actually believe uh, that it doesn't decrease the cost of consumer goods. And people did have explanations. Um, they weren't accurate, but they were uh, along the lines that, you know, transportation of goods, like China's a long way away. And we all know how much, you know, a plane ticket to China would be thousands of dollars. And when you add the transportation costs uh, to the cost of manufacturing product, products are going to be a lot more expensive if they come from overseas than if we make them next door. Now, obviously, what they're neglecting is the differentials in labor costs and so forth. But it was striking to me that in both countries, this is not a basic thing that's widely understood, uh, particularly among less educated members of the population. When you think about trade, 
they're basically, uh, you know, the dominant frame in both of our countries is jobs. Um, for whatever reason, that's the way people think about trade. But if you think about the kind of impact trade can have, both on our jobs and on trading partner countries, uh, there are basically four possible combinations here. And um, the standard economist view is that trade is a win-win kind of thing. It, it helps trading partner countries, and it helps our home countries. So overwhelmingly, and there's a, a survey of economists done every year out of the University of Chicago, uh, overwhelmingly, they view trade as a positive thing. It's not that it doesn't have some negative externalities. It does, uh, for sure. But overwhelmingly, economists are either here in the win-win cell, it helps both, or there are many economists these days who are right here who see not that it, it isn't a good thing for, uh, let's say, the United States or Canada, but rather that in the case of the United States, we manage to engineer trade agreements that are too good for us, that really exploit other countries in various ways. So the idea that it helps us, but it hurts some of our trading partner countries is something that you do find to a small extent among economists. Uh, the other possibilities are just that you think it's bad for everybody, uh, what I call the isolationist cell here. And then the cell that I find most interesting are those people who say it's bad for us, but it helps them. Um, and the idea that it's really a zero-sum kind of form of foreign aid uh, that we give to foreign countries, I found really interesting in part because, you know, it's not like the United States is known as this big, generous country that, oh, yeah, we just do this. We, we only engage in trade because we want to help others. You know, it's out of the goodness of our hearts and so forth. And yet, what's really interesting is when we ask people, is it, does it help or hurt jobs in the US? Does it help or hurt jobs in trading partner countries? We find that 50% of Americans are in this zero-sum cell. That is, they see it as something that benefits trading partner countries at our expense, and it's bad for us. So this I found fascinating in part because uh, overwhelmingly, you know, people see it this way, and then I wonder why they think we actually do it. Um, in some cases, people see it as, well, these are just powerful elites who want to do it. It's bad for uh, the average American. Uh, the reason these numbers, as you can see, the standard economist view of it being a positive thing for all participating is held by only 11% of the American public. You may wonder where the other people are because it doesn't add to 100%. If people said they didn't know for either how it affects the US or the trading partner, and that was particularly where they weren't sure, uh, they're not shown in a particular cell. These are people who had definite views one way or another for both the US and trading partner countries. Oops. Uh, what about Canada? Uh, Canada's interesting because this zero sum cell is much smaller in Canada. Only 27% of Canadians said it was a zero-sum kind of thing that helps them, hurts us. And at 21%, a much larger percentage, uh, endorsed the standard economist view that it's a win-win thing, good for everybody. Uh, these two cells were similarly you know, not very well populated. But obviously a very different view. Uh, when you compare the percentage in the US who see it as zero sum and the percentage in Canada, it's a huge difference. Uh, 
Americans are twice as likely to see trade uh, in zero-sum, highly competitive terms that ultimately hurts the US. One of the measures that I find is really important in creating this sense of competition is uh, a measure commonly used in political psychology called social dominance orientation. Social dominance orientation was originally invented as a way to study negative outgroup attitudes. And it's a really generic, uh, this is the short version of it that represents a longer battery, and this is what I used in the survey, but it's really a preference for hierarchy uh, versus equality. And what we know is that that's heavily correlated with racist views as well. But in my study of Americans, I found there's really a, a big difference in people's likelihood of seeing trade as zero sum based on whether they are highly competitive in these terms. Indeed, Americans are a lot higher in social dominance orientation than our Canadians. Americans endorse hierarchy uh, to a much greater extent than Canadians do. For me, that made sense given the patterns that I had observed and also the world values data on the level of competitiveness of Americans. We also had in the survey portion a scale that asked people uh, about their general attitude toward isolationism, but not in the context of the economy in particular. Uh, this is a widely used scale about how much you want to be involved with the rest of the world in various ways. Americans are more isolationist than our Canadians as well, um, consistently expressing views that suggest we want to stay out of the rest of the world in one fashion or, or another. Another thing that we uh, expected to influence uh, people's trade views is the kind of safety net that you have in a country. One of the common arguments in the United States is, you know, losing your job and having to be retrained for another one is a major disruption in your life. And America has a much weaker social welfare system. Uh, and as a result, it may be that people can't stand the kind of uh, dislocations in terms of jobs that they have to go through that trade causes. And so we are interested in people's attitudes toward the strength of their social welfare system. One of the things that I only found out recently is that apparently what the federal government calls our Cadillac of social welfare programs is called trade adjustment assistance. We actually do have a program, particularly for people who are, whose uh, livelihoods are interrupted or, or completely erased by trade in the United States, but no one has ever heard of it. And I think it's less than 10% of people who've experienced job loss due to trade have ever taken advantage of any component of it, even the tiniest part of it. And yet, it's a very... Um, uh, generous program compared to most of our social welfare programs. The problem is really that most manufacturing job loss in the United States is not due to trade, it's due to automation. 85% uh, of our manufacturing job loss is about automation, so most of those people aren't actually eligible for trade adjustment assistance. And the perception is that overwhelmingly the decline of manufacturing in the US is due to trade. Actually, our manufacturing output is way, way up uh, even though employment is way, way down in manufacturing. And that's largely because of automation makes the productivity go up. Well, not surprisingly, Canadians also see their country as higher in 
how well they handle the social welfare situation, much stronger in terms of their confidence that the people who fall on rough times or have the bad luck of being in a line of work that is affected by trade will actually be taken care of in their country. One of the um, uh, things that was debated during the last election was, you know, couldn't we increase our social welfare system, uh, particularly to help those people who need a safety net in the case of, uh, of trade? That went nowhere. Um, another index that is in the, this survey data is one uh, I call it national superiority. I know some have called it patriotism, some chauvinism. It has elements of both. But it's basically a sense of pride and positive feelings uh, about your national identity. Interestingly, um, oh, Canadians are much higher in their sense uh, of national superiority than our Americans. And I found this interesting in large part because uh, national superiority has overwhelmingly, in, in economists studied, been found to be a negative predictor of support for trade. That is, the more you're into your country, the less you want to involve yourself in international trade. So this actually pointed in the opposite direction from um, what I might have expected, given higher levels of support. So just to summarize these comparisons, Canadians are less likely to see trade in competitive zero-sum terms, lower in social dominance orientation, lower in isolationism, uh, higher in perceived social welfare success. And all those things in green should make them more pro-trade, right? Um, a potential negative are the high levels of national superiority in Canada um, could push in the direction of more anti-trade views. So I'm going to show you just one big observational comparison of regressions in the United States and Canada uh, on this index of uh, trade support. Uh, everything is in the equation at the same time, but I'm going to go through piece by piece so, uh, so I don't have really tiny numbers up there uh, on the screen. Just looking at demographic kinds of things, they're identical, uh, virtually identical in both Canada and the United States. What matters is income, education, and women are consistently less pro-trade. And that's been found in a large number of countries. And I think in some of Elizabeth's work has also been attributed to women liking competition less than men and seeing trade as about competition, something that has winners and losers, ultimately. So very similar here. Um, when we look at things like isolationism, social welfare success, and so forth, um, what we find is, again, like very, very similar. Um, it's social welfare success is a positive predictor of trade. Isolationism, a significant negative one in both countries. Zeros, some perceptions, a negative predictor in both countries. So haven't gone through to test whether the strength of these effects is different by country, but it's a really similar pattern of underlying psychological predispositions uh, with respect to trade attitudes. Um, national superiority and social dominance are two aspects that seem to work somewhat differently in the two countries. First of all, national superiority is just what so many economists uh, have predicted in the United States, that is, um, it's a predictor that in the United States makes you more anti-trade. That is, you think highly of your country, you think less of international trade. 
Uh, that's these red coefficients here, uh, blocks over here on the other side. Also, higher you are in social dominance orientation, the more anti-trade you are. Consistent with those expectations. What's fascinating to me is Canada on the other side. Not only does social dominance not have an effect, national superiority is a positive predictor of support for international trade. Now, I got really puzzled by this at first. I, you know, check my coding and all that kind of thing. But in part because there are some prominent pieces that have been published in political economy that have data from Canada showing that it has the same relationship as all these other countries. So I was puzzled. Has it changed or, you know, why is this? Um, it's all from the ISSP data, not ISPP, but ISSP. Um, and once I saw the question, and it's only one question, and it's used in all these different countries, it made a lot more sense to me. Um, what they're looking at is positive feelings toward one's country in relation to answers to this particular question. Country, whatever it is, uh, should limit the import of foreign products in order to protect its national economy. Well, you know, what's bad about this question is that it's defining uh, opposition to trade as protecting your national economy. Uh, so it's a very loaded question, and it's not surprising to me in this context that people who love their country more or think more highly of it say, oh, yeah, we want to protect our country. We like our country. So I'm not convinced that despite the dominant uh, conclusion that's out there in several major pieces that nationalism or national pride, national patriotism is necessarily a negative predictor of support for trade. And um, in, in trying to explain this, I'll tell you my interpretations, and you all will know far better than I do since you're Canadians, whether or not it makes sense. Last block of variables in this big regression here is party uh, identification. What's fascinating is no relationship in the United States anymore. It's, it's a dimension that's completely independent of whether you're Republican or Democrat. You know, it used to be the Republicans were the pro-traders. They were free market uh, folks. Now there is no relationship. And again, important to note that this is true long before Trump came on the scene. Uh, party had ceased to be a predictor in the United States quite some time ago. On the Canadian side, though, it appears that trade support is very much structured by your political parties. Uh, we find that identification with each of these parties uh, explains in one direction or another people's level of trade support. So I want to uh, emphasize there are a lot of similarities within countries, but there are these differences uh, in terms of social dominance's role, the role of prejudice in particular, um, and the role of national superiority, uh, as well as the role of parties. My interpretation of what's going on when we talk about uh, the relationship between national identity and international trade is that it's very similar to some other things I read about in contrast between uh, the United States and Canada. For example, uh, uh, there are pieces my former colleague at Penn, uh, Dick Johnston, was involved in that show the same thing is true with it for attitudes toward immigration in Canada. In the US, what we find is strong identification as American predicts anti-immigration views. In Canada, it positively predicts immigration views. Uh, also, we, Canada has a very different pattern in terms of the relationship between national identity and social welfare support. In the United States, 
people who are more pro-America are more anti-social welfare support. Canada, precisely the opposite. And so my off-the-cuff first-hand interpretation of this is that as a country that has an explicit commitment to multiculturalism and to defining itself um, as having a stronger social welfare state, that if you like the country, then you're going to like uh, uh, international involvement as well because the country has actually defined itself in some ways in these terms. So it's not surprising that these two views go hand in hand in a positive rather than a negative way in the case of Canada. But as I said, that's, again, not something I predicted because all the literature said it should be negative and so forth. Basically, my argument is that the difference in these patterns of support is contingent on how citizens define their national pride and national identity. And to the extent that Canada's official emphasis uh, on the value of multiculturalism is not present in the United States, it makes more sense that you find these same differential relationships with other issues like social welfare and immigration as well. Okay, I'm gonna move on now and talk about the second half of this study, which is the survey experiment, um, which was done three months later. People didn't know it was connected to the initial study and so forth. The goal of the experimental part of this was to say, look, if we control perceptions of who wins and who loses and by how much they win and lose, do Americans and Canadians react more or less the same way uh, to trade? Alternatively, the kinds of between-country differences that I've described, do they actually make a difference in how people respond to the very same trade agreements as outlined? So the basic survey experiment had three conditions on one of these factors. And basically, in one set of conditions, the home country, the in-country gains, and the trading partner loses some jobs. Second group of conditions, the trading partner gains and the home country loses some jobs, so exactly the reverse. And in the third condition, everybody gains, the classic kind of win-win situation where um, they may gain different amounts, but everybody benefits in some way from the trade agreement. I, we also varied how much was gained or lost. Uh, basically, trying to use Easy to understand numbers because we know numbers are really hard to use in survey experiments. People kind of glaze over and aren't very good uh, at figuring out um, what it actually means. But basically, the first number is how much the it's in the first row the home country gains, and the one is what the trading partner loses. So we have 21 different conditions here from crossing uh, these conditions, and. It was a very simple vignette. We just asked people, either the Canada or the United States is considering a trade policy that would have the following effects. And then they were in one of those 21 conditions about who gains how much, who loses how much, and so forth. Then we asked people if they favored or opposed that agreement. Very straightforward, four point scale, strongly oppose, strongly favor, and so forth. So very simple and straightforward. Um, my hypothesis was that two different forms of in-group favoritism would be relevant here. One I call compatriotism, and that is just favoring gains for your home country strictly because they're citizens of the same country. Uh, obviously, in that case, what we'd expect to see is a pattern where people 
look for maximum in-group benefit. And that's where we see the highest level of trade support, regardless of what the collective benefit to the world as a whole is. The second form of in-group favoritism is a lot more uh, interesting in some ways. I call it the intergroup competition form of favoritism. And the idea here is that people are not looking at how much the home country gains so much as how much the home country gains relative to what happens to the trading partner. So it's a tendency to favor the national in-group relative to the out-group so you maximize your relative advantage. And in this case, you'd follow a strategy that emphasizes the difference between yourself and the other country. Um, Jim Sedanius, a political psychologist, calls this Vladimir's choice. Um, and I like this uh, name for it, but it comes from an Eastern European folktale uh, where a guy named Vladimir's been a good guy all his life. And uh, God comes to Vladimir and says, I will give you one wish, anything you want. You can have it. You just name it. Uh, but there's one catch. Whatever I give to you, I give to your neighbor, Ivan, twice over. So Vladimir thinks about it. Doesn't take him too long. He says, OK, fine. Take out my right eye. OK, <laughs> you're like, what? Well. Ivan, his neighbor, is not going to be able to have any sight at all now because Ivan's going to lose both eyes. So even though he's lowered his personal gain from this choice, he's increased how much better off he is from Ivan. And Sidanius argues that that kind of uh, intergroup comparison drives a lot of in-group favoritism uh, judgments as well. So, those who are susceptible to this kind of Vladimir's choice idea, this intergroup competition, are people who see things in zero-sum competition terms, which we knew from the earlier survey about these folks. Uh, we only really win if you lose. We can't both win uh, in this view. And the way that we look at that in the survey experiment is to compare those first two conditions. The total gain is always the same, but it's who gains it uh, in the case of the compatriotism hypothesis that matters. The way we look at the intergroup competition hypothesis is to compare the case where the trading partner gains and the home country, I'm sorry, it's the, where the home country gains in both cases and the trading partner either gains or loses. No difference in how the home country fares. And then finally, the third thing we look at is, is there any amount of trading partner gain uh, that can encourage support for trade in the in-country? That is, you know, if it's really wonderful for the rest of the world, but one or two Americans loses a job, is it worth it? Uh, does it make a difference how it affects trading partner countries? So here's the comparison when the US loses the trading partner gains or the US gains and the trading partner loses the same amount of jobs. In the United States, overwhelmingly, not surprisingly, people favor when the US gains and the trading partner loses. That shouldn't shock anyone. What's interesting is that difference is not nearly as great in Canada. Uh, these are the percent favoring trade in Canada uh, when Canada loses and the trading partner gains versus Canada gains and the trading partner loses. And as you can see, the gap between the two is far less in the case of Canada than it is in the United States. When you put these together, 
what you see is that the U.S. is a lot more favorable toward trade so long as we gain and they lose. Canada is actually more positive toward trade than the U.S. when they lose and the trading partner gains. So very different situations. Obviously, we expect less support overall there on the left when the in-country loses. But the difference between the two countries is striking. Obviously, a very strong interaction in this case, where for Americans, it's about winning. Uh, and for Canadians, it's not entirely about winning. That does play a role. Looking at those various levels of gain and loss, um, when I first did this, before I did it on a, a representative national population and paid money for it, I ran this experiment on MTurk. And MTurk, as you know, is a convenient sample, tends to be a lot more liberal than conservative in terms of representing the United States. Um, but I wanted to see at what point levels of support for trade were the same whether or not the US gained and the trading partner lost or vice versa. In other words, where does the level of support become similar? So that's essentially where these two lines cross one another. And in this case, based on the MTurk data, it suggests that one American job is worth about 25 foreigner jobs. That is, at that point, levels of support for trade became similar. At this point, I decided, oh, and the manipulation checks worked and all that, so I decided I was good to go. I was going to do it on the national population. Was not um, necessarily thinking about the huge differences between MTurkers and average Americans in that they are far more liberal. And what I found when I did this in the representative national sample is that I didn't go far enough out. Those lines never cross in a representative sample of Americans, meaning there's no number of uh, American jobs versus foreigner jobs that make uh, them positive. So no amount of foreigner gain really matters uh, to a representative sample of Americans. It's all about us uh, and strictly us. In Canada, in the representative sample, on the other hand, these two come together at around 10 foreigner jobs, meaning that levels of support uh, are roughly the same uh, when you have a gain of 10 for the other country, uh, even with one American uh, ultimately losing a job. So obviously a very different pattern. Um, we, in the pretest as well as in the survey itself, looked at uh, asking people, you know, how much did the trading partner gain in the uh, trading agreement you were described, and how much did the home country gain, and so forth. Um, What's interesting is that uh, people did, in fact, take these numbers into account in a very rough sense. They weren't uh, obviously perfect uh, across them. But Canadians seem to take into account how it affects other countries as well. Second form of in-group favoritism, the intergroup competition thesis, uh, I looked at separately and together. If we look at this in the United States, what you see is that in both these conditions, the in-country gains the same amount. In one case, the trading partner loses. In the other case, the trading partner gains. And there is no significant difference in support for trade when it's a win-win. Americans did not see the win-win condition as more desirable uh, than the condition where US wins and the trading partner loses. This was baffling to me. Uh, I really thought it was kind of obvious that the win-win would have the most support. 
If we look in Canada, uh, we do see a significant difference. That is, the win-win scenario uh, is significantly more supported than the one where the in-country gains the exact same amount, but the trading partner loses. Putting these together, again, uh, classic interaction where in the in-country gain, trading partner gain condition, we see more support among Canadians, and the reverse when the in-country gains and the trading partner loses. Uh, in that case, Americans are a lot more supportive of it. Consistent with the idea that Americans see trade very much as a form of competition where we want to win and beat the other guy, uh, we see very different patterns of trade support here. Much smaller when the own country gains and the trading partner gains. They don't even see the gain to the home country as the same. Now, we do have the same pattern in Canada. That is, people see the gain of trade as bigger if the trading partner loses than if the trading partner also benefits. However, this difference is significantly smaller than it is in the American case. But the pattern is there either way. People clearly are contrasting uh, how they think the in-group and the out-groups are faring as a result. In the United States, this intergroup competition explains really important differences by party. As I said, party does not predict trade preferences, but in the experiment where we hold constant who wins and who loses, what we see is Democrats are much more supportive of trade in the win-win scenario. Republicans are only very supportive when the US wins and the trading partner loses. This is very consistent with the high levels of social dominance orientation among Republicans as well. Again, when we look at gender, this is the US sample. Uh, women are more supportive of trade than men when it's a win-win scenario. Men are more supportive than women when US wins trading partner loses. Again, men are higher in social dominance orientation uh, than women are as well. This same pattern, uh, it looks different in Canada because the tall uh, measure on the right for the win-win among both men and women, but we do find the same difference that when Canada wins and the trading partner loses, women are much less likely to support trade in Canada as well. So what's nice is that in this experiment, we can use those psychological differences that we identified in the earlier survey and look at how that conditioned people's responses to the experimental stimuli. As I mentioned earlier, one of the biggest problems I had, in fact, I wasn't even sure I was going to continue this line of work, is when I tried to publish some of the American data on trade support, Overwhelmingly, people would say, well, it's kind of interesting, but everybody knows public opinion on trade doesn't matter. Um, there are articles that have been published claiming this, saying you know, it doesn't affect congressional elections, it doesn't affect presidential elections, and so forth. And that is the conventional wisdom that has been out there for a long, long time. Um, they're not saying that uh, the candidates don't talk about it, but what happens is that our candidates typically have campaigned generally in an anti-trade stance, and then when they get in office, uh, they are much more pro-trade than their persona as a candidate would suggest. And because that's been a common pattern in the United States, we actually see declining trade support surrounding presidential elections. And it's because both candidates tend to run trade bashing ads. 
And in the 2012 election, both Obama and Romney ran a great deal of especially China bashing ads and how we're going to stick it to China and uh, show them they can't boss us around and so forth. Um, What's interesting is that I do find, and this is part of what I presented earlier this week at Laval, 2016 was very different. That is, we do see lots of evidence that issues like immigration and trade did enter into presidential vote choice. Overall, my conclusions are that on one hand, trade is driven by a lot of the same things in both of our countries. Um, it's not a lot about economics. Um, Anti-trade views are viewed in both cases as socially acceptable by virtue of saying, you know, it's our love of country. Uh, that's the reason we want to keep foreigners out in the case of Americans. But it matters to Canadians, but not Americans, how other countries are affected by trade policies. The thing that I think is really important for policymakers who advocate trade to realize is that when you talk about trade as a form of competition between countries, as if we're like all in the Olympics or something, you emphasize this sense of it being a, a game in which there are winners and losers. And that view of trade, uh, on one hand, if you think your side is winning, it can increase those who are highly competitive, their support for trade. On the other hand, it turns off the other side uh, to portray it in terms of a competitive game. Why care about what the public thinks? Well, I've mentioned the fact that it does really have an impact on vote choice. That will help convince some future reviewers, hopefully, that uh, this is actually worth publishing. Um, Obviously, in this past election, we also saw that public opinion on trade had consequences for policymakers. Numerous policymakers, who we know actually not to be anti-trade, felt compelled to espouse anti-trade views uh, as a result of what happened during the election. They could see that public opinion uh, was not on their side, that they had not made the case as political elites in favor of trade adequately. The final thing I want to point out, though, is in the United States, in the context of it being something that's a, a function of outgroup anxiety and uh, negative attitudes toward outgroups, it also matters, we find, to people's private judgments. And uh, I'm going to show you briefly an experiment uh, that I did with one of my grad students who recently quit working at the State Department <laughs> because she doesn't want to work for Trump. Um, Basically, uh, we did an experiment where we showed people these ads from the last election, from the 2012 election. We showed them uh, Obama ads or Romney ads, uh, and they, these were real ads that, from the election that ran quite a bit. And they either got to see the Obama ad or the Romney ad that was the trade bashing anti-China ad, or they saw uh, either of the candidates' views on uh, gender issues. Both of the candidates had, had sets of, uh, uh, of ads on gender issues as well. And that served as our control condition in this case. The argument here is that when candidates, when leaders, don't exercise leadership on this issue and instead use it for purposes of electoral gain, that's not without consequences. So, what we did is they watched the ads uh, in one of these four cells. After that, they sorted a big group of 
potential college applicants, and they rank them in terms of who should get in uh, to college. Who you're an admissions officer, um, you know, and these were guys whose pictures we got off the web, and we pre-tested them for all kinds of things. But basically, uh, we used a design that changed race and nationality uh, of various four of these uh, candidates for admission. But their characteristics were randomly assigned and rotated through. They were all actually very good students and had lots of activities and all that kind of thing. So you could, uh, it wasn't an easy job to sort among them, let me put it that way. So we had a manipulation in which they were Asian or white, and also whether they were American or Chinese in terms of nationality. Uh, all of this was in the description. I was puzzled by the white Chinese cell here. But actually, my graduate student, who has lived in China for many years, says, oh, no, there are some, not that many. But yes, uh, there are those who look racially white who are uh, Chinese by nationality. So what did we find? We found that if you had seen the ads, the trade bashing ads, you were systematically more negative toward the applicants who were either in Chinese nationality or Asian in race. So what's fascinating to me about this is that it suggests that the, the role that outgroup negativity plays in attitudes toward trade also works the opposite direction. That is, when our politicians bash trade, it encourages negative attitudes toward people of other races as well as other nationalities. So that's obviously uh, a concern. And it's something that I think we've We've complained for many years about our leaders not playing a leadership role with respect to trade attitudes. But they really did just use it for electoral gain and then went ahead and did what they want once they were elected. We haven't had someone who really championed trade uh, as a political leader. And the reason is that they're afraid of it, for the most part. They're afraid that the views of the public are much more negative than the views of most political elites. And as a result, it will hurt them uh, when they're running for election. OK, those are some of the consequences we've documented thus far. I'm going to stop now and open things up for your questions and comments and suggestions on what I need to look at, particularly with respect to the Canadian data, which I'm just starting to analyze. Thank you. Thank you.